The motion picture screen opens the door to sights you've never seen before. Shock Corridor. The medical jungle doctors don't talk about. A labyrinth of twisted detours that both sexes stumble along. Case history number one. Johnny B., brilliant newspaper reporter, suffering from hallucinations that his sweetheart is his sister. Johnny. What's the matter? What is it, Johnny? Tell me. You're exciting the other patients by shouting. Johnny. Johnny, you mean no. It's business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. This is Kim again, and we're doing a little something different today. I am joined as well by Samantha Ellis. Hi. And we have a special guest joining us, one of our lovely patrons, as I like to call them, Jacob Haller. Jacob, how are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no. So glad to have you. Today, we are doing something a bit different for us and it'll be kind of fun to get in Samantha on this discussion and me as well because we're breaking some new ground here on Ticklish Business. We are talking about the 1963 film Shock Corridor directed by Samuel Fuller starring Peter Breck and Constance Towers. The plot follows Peter Breck as a crusading journalist who decides he wants to get a Pulitzer Prize and he's going to get himself committed into, for lack of a better word, an insane asylum to solve a murder. And everything that happens after that in its interesting pulpy form. So let's start out with a brief discussion. Jacob, I know you and Kristen had sort of planned this, our fearless leader who is not with us today. So what drew you to this film? Yeah, so I think this will be kind of interesting because I don't think any of us have watched a ton of Sam Fuller movies. But one of the reasons why I wanted to do it was that my aunt and uncle are screenplay writers and they are big admirers of Sam Fuller. And so I had heard a lot about him and I had watched this movie a while ago. And I also took this opportunity to watch a couple of others, The Naked Kiss and The Crimson Kimono. You know, I knew that he kind of loomed large in their minds as a great unorthodox filmmaker. And so I kind of wanted to have an excuse to explore him more. And Samantha, how about you? As I was mentioning to you guys before we started recording, Sam Fuller is definitely very new to me. It's one of those things, I know there's a word for it, but you hear the name once, and I had never heard the name before, say a week ago. And since then, it's been popping up everywhere for some reason. Like I know Shot Corridor was available on HBO Max, and a couple days before I sat down to watch it, I knew I was going to watch it, but I was just at the time just on HBO Max looking for something else. And they have a spotlight on director's first films. And one of the first films that came up was Sam Fuller. And I was like, wow, I know who that is. I'm about to watch a movie of this. (laughs) So it's just one of those weird things where he's popping up everywhere now, but I had never even heard of him or this film before a week ago. Really, the only thing that I was familiar with going into this film was Constance Towers. I had never seen anything of hers, but the only way that I really knew her was through John Gavin, her husband. I knew that they were married. See, I hadn't even gotten there yet. That's kind of delightful. 
Yeah, I was really excited to finally see a movie of hers. It, it was actually really cute before he passed away. Fans used to write fan mail to the same address and get both of them at once. I'm kidding. <laughs> it was quite cute. So I'm in kind of a halfway in between boat there. I knew Fuller's name and those of you in the noir camp will probably have seen a little bit of his work. He's worked on Pickup on South Street, you know, the Richard Woodmark fangirl and me absolutely loves other films, House of Bamboo. I know I've seen that. The Crimson Kimono was a first time watch for me this year. And then The Naked Kiss is actually now on my two watch list. I have never seen that one. And I knew of his persona, but then as I was sitting here before I was recording, I had one thought in my head. I, I kept tying him with Don Siegel and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And then I realized I was mixing him up with Sam Peckinpah. So I quickly realized that I probably have this Samuel Fuller, Sam Peckinpah, and probably add someone else, you know, fuzzy spot in my brain about these three filmmakers who all made such interesting, notable work, I would say. Before we get into it, here's a short little ad for our Patreon. If you're a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our channels, our Patreon website at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, as well as our Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, our YouTube channel, and our Instagram channel. Help us out. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCM's 52 must-see movies and why they matter. Now, back to the show. Let's start out with an easy one. What were your thoughts about the film since it was, it sounds like it was really a relatively new experience for all of us. What did you guys think of it? So basically for me, I didn't really go into this film expecting too much. I would say that I went into it really not knowing. I expected sort of a B-camp horror film. And what I got, I feel, was very different. I went into this, again, not really familiar with any of the actors, I thought. And then kind of the performance that I latched onto that sort of made the tides turn and made me get really into this film was James Best. I don't know if either of you two are familiar with him, but I am through The Twilight Zone. I know Christian and I did an episode on our favorite Twilight Zone episodes earlier, and James Best, I believe, was in more than one. He was just one of those actors. He had such a familiar face to me, and he never was really super well known by name, but every performance of his that I've seen on The Twilight Zone and really through other avenues of the 60s, I just loved. In this, he plays the mental patient who believes he's a Civil War general. And as soon as I saw him, I was like, wow, I know who that is. And then it kind of dawned on me as I was watching, I'd say that happens maybe a third of the way in. The other two thirds of the film, it kind of dawned on me that I felt like I was watching a full length Twilight Zone episode, <laughs> especially, I know we'll get to it, but with the ending and everything, just the very stark black and white, the mental and psychosis of everything, and all of those really key supporting performances that Twilight Zone loves to highlight really made it stand out to me in that regard. And really, as soon as I saw him and as soon as I saw his performance and latched onto the rest of the film, I fell in love with it. 
I did not expect to love this movie as much as I did. It's so well acted. It really makes you think. And just that full circle ending moment, I think is just incredible. Yeah, I felt like his performance and the guy who played Trent, Harry Rhodes, just very compelling during the whole thing. And I think one of the things about this movie, my understanding is that Fuller worked for a studio for a time. And then at a certain point, got frustrated by studio interference, decided to go independent. And this was either his first or one of his first movies that he did. And I really get a sense from this and some of the other movies I saw that he didn't really want to make a movie unless he had something pretty clear that he wanted to say with it. I Maybe I shouldn't say pretty clear because there are parts of this movie that are kind of confusing to me. But he wanted to say something that he didn't think anyone else was saying. And I think that really is a reason why this movie, which I found to be so strange, is also so compelling and deserving of, I think, multiple watches. Well, that actually brings me to kind of something that struck me and what I absolutely loved, Samantha, that you made that television comparison. It was kind of an interesting watch for me because this year, and this might sound like a slam on the film. Trust me, listeners, it isn't. I have been watching a lot of Roger Corman, a lot of 1950s B films throughout the year. And I had watched previous to this, a little earlier in the year, and it was one of my favorite films of the month that I watched in that kind of fun way, The Creeping Hand. And that was Peter Breck's immediate film he did before this one, or The Crawling Hand, I'm sorry, The Crawling Hand. And he had made that in the same year. And essentially the plot there, it's delightfulness knows no bounds. Astronaut is killed in space and his hand basically ends up on earth and starts killing people. And Peter Breck is the befuddled government agent who has to kind of help solve these crimes. But watching those two films back to back, that and Shock Corridor put together was such a fascinating experience because it really helps emphasize this film as part of that independent scene that you see that be pulpy nature that, you know, we really were seeing also in television at the same time. This was such a fast shoot. It was a 10 day shoot and it was such a labor of love, I think. For me, like I said, I entered this expecting a B horror film at really mm-hmm. low production quality. Right. I didn't expect anything from the acting performances. And I was really blown away by how, for lack of a better word, highbrow it was. Mm -hmm. It really did have a lot to say. And every actor knocked it out of the park, truly. And it's really miraculous that this was a 10-day shoot. I don't understand how that's even possible for a film of this quality and caliber. The cinematography, I think, was amazing and really served as the lens of what you see. Mm -hmm. I don't know (laughs) if that makes any sense, but I think the stark black and white, especially, you know, in the 60s, that was more of an artistic choice by that point. And the fact that they really did that and the the contrast and the lighting, I think all really help set the tone for the environment. And it really, the score too, all of it combined really makes you feel like you're in this psychiatric ward with these patients trying to solve this murder with him. 
And I would say Peter Breck, I had never seen him in anything before this, Mm -hmm. but he gave me very strong Jim Hutton vibes. I don't know about you guys. That could be why I like it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like they're almost a little bit interchangeable. Like if Jim Hutton was in this, I would not feel any differently. (laughs) Peter Breck audiences, if you do not know, Big Valley watchers will recognize him as eldest brother Nick. That was where I stumbled upon his work. He was kind of one I never heard about until I watched the Big Valley. And then it's like, oh, Peter Breck here, Peter Breck here. Early TV watchers, chances are you've seen him in Westerns. I know he was active in Maverick as well. Getting back to that cinematography, though, that was such a huge part of it. And looking at the IMDb for it, and then I was kind of falling into Criterion shorts about this this morning as well. Stanley Cortez is credited as the cinematographer. And what jumped out to me there is The Magnificent Ambersons and Night of the Hunter. So that shows you the power of his vision of his camera, because I mean, both of those films known for stark cinematography, but gorgeous cinematography. And that's really, I would say, what jumped out to me throughout this film. And as soon as I saw the name and saw what he did, it was like, okay, that makes perfect, perfect sense. The other thing that I think about in that connection is kind of talking about the stark black and white, which is absolutely accurate. But then there are also these sections when you go into the minds of the inmates when they're having these breaks and then it's in color suddenly. And the first time that happened, really, I was like, what is going on? Like, what is this? And it's so unexpected and striking and kind of beautiful. Right. That stood out to me. It was so inventive. It definitely took me by surprise. And you already feel kind of uneasy watching this film and a little bit off edge. So when you see those moments of color in not really flashback, they're kind of random, almost stock videos (laughs) thrown in as sort of a look inside the patient's minds. But I think they're so cool. And I never would have thought to do that. And It's really surprising. I mean, you can make a laundry list of things that other directors and cinematographers would have never thought to do when making a film like this. And Sam Fuller obviously did. So I think that we owe him a lot of credit for making a film like this. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he was the first person to do this, but obviously a lot of directors have done kind of similar things where the film will be black and white, but there's a patch of color here or there. And it's always very meaningful. And I think those tend to be more subtle than what happens here. But also, it's hard to beat this in terms of like knocking you on your butt. And when you think in terms of what he was working with as well, he probably couldn't afford to shoot new color scenes to put in, which is why the images that you see in color feel a little bit, like I said, like stock images. But I think that they're still really meaningful to the story. And it's super amazing that he even thought to do that. And especially in the scene, like I said, with James Best, the first time you see it, I think it really takes you by surprise. Those scenes went so deep into building the perspectives. And I think that is part of why this film is almost hard to talk about because Ultimately, you're in Johnny's perspective, the Peter Brett character, but there's a thin line between sanity and insanity. And watching these characters, you see them in their 
lucid moments. You see them snap in and out. And I think how he built those with the color film, don't quote me on the correctness of this fact, but I think I read somewhere that was B-roll from some of his earlier films. I think I saw House of Bamboo and some others, but it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you on edge. You're not sure what's real, what's not. And it's such an interesting creative choice. And it's also, it serves a storytelling purpose as well, just because what you come to realize happens a couple of times. And what you sort of realize is that they're kind of in the depths of their mental illness. And then they have this real break where you see the color images. And then after that, they're sort of lucid for a little while. And then they go back into their illness. And so at the end, when Johnny himself has this color vision of a waterfall. Once that's over, you know that he's like in control of himself for a while, but it may not last as in fact it doesn't. And so that's, I don't know, it's neat. I think for me, the biggest issue that I had with this film, and this is really only an issue because we're holding it up against modern cinema and the things we know now. I had an issue with the integrity and the authenticity of how they dealt with mental illness. Obviously, they didn't know as much back then, and they really had to display each patient's issues in ways that the audience could understand. So I understand why they did what they did and why they handled it the way they did. But I feel like it is, for lack of a better phrase, very black and white, the way that each patient is handled. It just doesn't seem very accurate that every single one of them would have moments where they're completely 100% normal or 100% crazy. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But for the storytelling purposes, you know, they did what they had to do. And obviously they had a lot more to learn about mental health. I feel like it's pretty melodramatic, you know, in the sense of it's not really intended to be realistic. You know, hopefully nobody is going in there and at the end thinks, oh, this is what a mental hospital is like, because there's just so much that's ridiculous. You know, at the end of the movie, what do they say? He's a catatonic schizophrenic is his diagnosis at the end. So he's just sort of standing there with his arms outstretched kind of rigidly. And his girlfriend goes over and poses his arms around her in this false embrace. And what a bizarre thing. Like, is that something that you could ever imagine anyone doing in real life in this medical office? And yet it's like so creepy and striking. One of the things I was wondering going into this discussion was like, I could see someone watching this movie and hating it. And, you know, partly for some of those reasons. And I was wondering if any of us would feel that way. None of us do, obviously, but I could understand that wouldn't be an illegitimate response to me. I think especially people that have mental issues and, you know, have been in those kinds of establishments and have really struggled with that in this day and age might have an issue with it. I personally haven't, but it's definitely not realistic, as you mentioned, and it almost serves as sort of a plot hole to me. I just feel like the access that he has to all of the witnesses is very strange. It just doesn't make sense that he can get all three of these witnesses to this murder alone and talk to them enough to see them sane. And apparently the detectives didn't do that. <laughs> right. It, it sort of implies that the detectives 
talked to them for maybe five minutes, said, okay, this guy is crazy and gave up on the entire case. Wrote him off. And, And of course they didn't interrogate the attendant at all. Or spoiler alert, the attendant who ended up being the murderer, because it took our protagonist about five minutes to (laughs) break this attendant and get him to confess the entire thing. One of the things that I ultimately kind of love about this movie is how it almost dares you. We don't care about the murder. We don't know anything about the murder. We never see the person who's murdered. Like if this movie were made today, someone would say, okay, we have to have a flashback or something where we see the murder. So we know what's going on. That would be something that you would have to do. But here, Fuller doesn't care who the murderer is. The main character doesn't care who the murderer is. He just wants to get his Pulitzer. And it's like the MacGuffiniest of MacGuffins. For something that is ostensibly like a movie about solving a murder, it's amazing how little information we get about it and how little we care about it. So true. I mean, we don't even get the motive from the attendant ever. Bowden says that. Yeah, Bowden, yeah. He says of Sloan, the murder victim, for an insane man, he had morals that he had a confrontation with Wilkes because Wilkes had been having sex with some of the female inmates and he was going to go to the head doctor to tell him about it. Oh, I missed that part somehow. (laughs) I mean, it's not important in a way, right? That kind of shows how unimportant it ends up being at the end. And, you know, they never really show like what happens to Wilkes in the midst of all of this. Like we're supposed to care, I guess, about the murder. But like like you said, it really is the ultimate MacGuffin in the sense that it's more about the journey than the destination. (laughs) I think that's the point. I think it's more about the journey than the destination. Because I will admit watching this, I knew there was a murder plot, but I kept glossing over the details. I was more invested in these characters and I was lost in the environment that Fuller crafts. So harsh and uncomfortable. I will mention the opera scenes. He lets those go so loud and so long. And I was grading my, I was looking at my time thing. I was looking at the time code on the TV. I'm like, how long is this going? Is this, I'm, I was content. I'm like, no, I can't fast forward this, but I really felt Fuller's hands throughout this, making it clear that I think we're supposed to get lost in these people's conditions. You're supposed to be feeling on edge and almost paralleling the Johnny character, I would say. I wonder if he's trying to make a point on mental illness and, for lack of a better word, insanity. Absolutely. I think Number one, it's so genius the way that we see Johnny sort of erode over the course of the film. And I think the real litmus test for that is each time he visits Kathy. Because I think Kathy is she's supposed to be the same person in the narrative. And she's the best person to compare Johnny to each time they visit with each other. So we can sort of see each time how... Johnny is doing mentally and each time it gets worse. And I think that was a really smart move. And for me, I agree with you. Definitely what wrapped me up the most was each of the three witnesses, because they all give such solid performances, especially as Jacob mentioned, the first two. I think when you see Trent, that must have been so hard 
for that actor to do. I just have to throw that out that there. That whole scene, I was like, oh no, oh, I'm like, what are we doing here? Oh no. Right. I mean, basically in the 60s to have a Black person play a person with a white supremacist complex, I think that said a lot. And the fact that they even dared to do that I think was so, I don't even want to say innovative. I think that's kind of an uncomfortable word to say. But again, the fact that that actor took on that role and really sold it, he played that part and not just playing something that was so against him and so against his nature, but also playing someone who's mentally unwell. He really had to combine both of those into one performance. We keep cusping that B-movie nature of this and how comfortable Fuller was working there. Like you said, yeah, innovative is a good word, but it doesn't feel like the right word. And it's salacious almost in places. And you feel Fuller's hands on it as with his journalism background. And I kept reading throughout all of my prep for this episode He started out in the newspaper business, how ingrained he was in that business. He was what a crime reporter in the East Squad, New York, I think I read in the 30s. And you can just imagine the stuff he must have seen and the stuff he must have dealt with and how invested he probably was in that Peter Breck character. But throughout it's you couldn't imagine a studio doing this at this point. And this is so important to his voice as a filmmaker, the risks he was taking, the outside of the ordinary steps. And I think that a whole movie hinges on this courage that he brought to the camera as a producer, writer and director of all these films. I read this story that he told where when he was a reporter, at one point he was investigating the Ku Klux Klan clearly important to this movie, right? And so he went to a Klan rally, I think undercover, and he saw a woman there breastfeeding a baby, full Klan regalia, opening her robe so that she could feed this baby. So he included that in his story because it was this image that, you know, this kind of unbelievable image to him of this person, in the words of Stuart, being fed ignorance and racism from a very young age. And so he put this in his story and his editor cut it out because he didn't believe it happened. And Sampler was incredibly angry. And he says, it happened exactly the way I wrote it. And the editor says, well, you should have gotten a picture then. And Flora's like, well, I'm a writer. I'm not a photographer. And then he thought about it. And he's like, if I had just had that one photo, that would have been more powerful than every word I wrote. So he told this as kind of a story of his journey towards thinking, oh, maybe there's something in this whole photography motion picture thing. I was watching an interview with him and he had this fascinating quote that I've never thought of. He talks about a director being a creator with a camera. And he goes, our job as directors essentially is to show, not tell. We have to do things that you can't do on radio and can't do in novels. It seems so simple, but you can just see throughout this mindset that he's bringing towards it. And it's totally clear throughout the film. Yeah, I would definitely say that some of the best directors really bring all of their experience from all of their different facets of life into their work. And you can definitely see that here. As we were mentioning before, the mental illness aspect of this film isn't very realistic. 
But for the limited amount of knowledge that they had at the time, I can't imagine the research that all of the actors must have put in in order to give as convincing of performances as they could. And again, they all did such an amazing job with it. What I was thinking about were the long takes. You know, they were working with a couple sets at most, 10 day shoot. And I was watching a documentary on the Criterion channel of this showing just these long takes, showcasing how Fuller was just moving the camera throughout. But then ultimately, you have these actors in these shots, in these very challenging, complicated, complex roles, having to go for minutes on end. I could only, after especially this film, nothing but respect for Peter Breck for what he did throughout. He's unrestrained. And there are sequences. I know as I was watching, I could envision in film school, it might not necessarily play well in a group. But as long as you're watching this, you have to come at it through a not 2021 lens because it's easy to get caught up in the depictions of mental illness, all of these questions. But watching it as film, as an art form, as an examination of this story, and I would say as, I keep using the term, but B-movie, it's really a fascinating craft to come together because there's so much happening and director, the actors, this is an example of something just gelling and coming together in an incredibly fascinating way. A fair amount of like the movie is about the effects of racism and the legacy of racism. The first witness, Stuart, is someone who grew up in the Bible Belt in Gettysburg, the son of a tenant farmer. And he's the one who talks about sort of being raised in ignorance and hate. He joins the army to get away from his home. He's captured in Korea and is brainwashed, essentially. And then he meets another prisoner who he's assigned to help brainwash, who refuses to be brainwashed. And as a result, he throws off his conditioning, is considered mentally ill by the Koreans and is sent back home where he becomes convinced that he's Confederate general, Jeb Stewart. And Johnny in with him is Johnny said that he's Nathan Bedford Forrest a real-life historical figure who was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And so Stuart is kind of rebelling against the United States. First, he becomes a communist, and then later he thinks he's a member of the Confederacy. And it's because of this early conditioning from his parents, his father, who he loves but also kind of hates. And then the second witness, Trent, is the Black man who thinks he's a white supremacist. And he had been, after the Supreme Court ruling saying that segregated schools were not legal, he was the first Black student at an all-white college. And ultimately, his experience of racism there, combined with the incredible pressure on him to succeed despite all of these obstacles, caused him to retreat and ultimately the word. I think you could say that the hate that he felt on him, as you were saying, trying to succeed at the college, made him sort of snap and turn into the thing that hated him. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so that's to the extent where Trent like tries to, and almost succeeds in start a lynch mob against another black inmate in the asylum. So Johnny is this reporter who's in here to find this story. And in here, he finds this guy who was brainwashed by the Koreans and now thinks he's a general. He finds one of the first black people to go to an all white college. Those are not the stories he's interested in. He wants to report on the murder. And then when he talks to Bowden, you know, Bowden is 
someone who, a clear scientist who was an engineer on the space race and then the nuclear bombs. And he, again, has all this responsibility on him in this war that he ultimately does not want to be killed in a nuclear war or anything. He doesn't necessarily think that it's better if the Americans have more bombs than the Russians. And so he ultimately retreats to his childhood. That stuff, I feel like, is what the movie is. That's why this Mm -hmm. movie exists. If Sam Fuller didn't want to talk about those things, he wouldn't have made this movie. Oh, exactly. I completely agree. And that is all throughout... As we said, the murder is really just the MacGuffin. I think this is the story that Sam Fuller wanted to tell. He wanted to cast an eye on those questions of racism, what the nuclear technology was doing. Johnny might not be invested in these. He's just trying to get to the final story. But ultimately, we spend so much time with each of these witnesses to an uncomfortable level the middle witness, the when we're dealing with racism, that is, I mean, trigger warning viewers, it's hard. Lots of hard language. It's lots of hard ideas. It's unflinching. And this is what the story that Fuller wanted to tell. And that when I keep referring to his courage as a filmmaker and the innovation he was bringing, it's in that desire to shine a light on these issues, which, I mean, I think we all know wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do, especially in 1963. It says a lot that, again, I tend to focus more on the first two witnesses than the third. I feel like they kind of breeze through Bowdoin a little bit. As you were saying, what they were trying to tell with Bowdoin is definitely different from the first two. But going back to the first two, I think it's really interesting that Obviously, Johnny had to do a lot of research before entering the mental hospital in order to know what to say, in order to know how to act, and really how to get the story that he wanted. And I find it really fascinating that the first two witnesses, he basically pretends to be the same person, and it works to break both of them. I think that says a lot. And I think that's a really interesting fact to throw in there that that he pretended to be Nathan Bedford Forrest for the first witness and for the second witness. And he was able to obtain information from both of them by pretending to be a white supremacist and a real historical figure, as Jacob mentioned. So you're right. This movie has so much to say beyond mental illness and beyond the lengths that a man will go to to get what he wants. And it does play very noir in that sense. I mean, we don't really have a whole lot of sympathy for Johnny throughout this film. I think from the beginning, I don't know about you two, but I questioned, you know, why would you want something so badly? And the fact that obtaining an award like the Pulitzer Prize is because of your art and because of what you have to say. And I feel like his pursuit of the Pulitzer kind of defeats the purpose. A writer who really cared Mm. about his content and cared about his words wouldn't want the Pulitzer as badly as Johnny does. And I feel like that hurts him in the end. And we can see that in the ending about the lengths that he'll go to. That also goes to another place I wanted to go, the Constance Towers character, Kathy. I would say Kathy is our audience surrogate. And you're right, Johnny is not really likable. I would say he's relatable at some extent, but you spend so much time with Kathy throughout these sequences. 
where you can just see the hell, for lack of a better word, that he's putting her through and just how hard this ask is on her. And he honestly can't see that. As I was reading, I'm like, wow, everybody keeps talking about her as a stripper. And I'm like, that's what are they doing with that character? But she is our most likable character. She is our most relatable character. And like Samantha, you mentioned earlier, she is the gauge of his sanity and she plays such an important role. What did you guys think of Kathy and, and the Constance Towers' performance? As you said, I really enjoyed it. It's interesting. She gives me sort of an innocent, intelligent vibe. And it's so strange seeing that and then seeing the scenes where she's a stripper, basically. And I feel like that speaks for itself a lot, too. The fact that they make her that profession. We haven't even really gotten into the mental illness that Johnny fakes in order to get into the mental hospital, which is they pretend that Kathy is not his girlfriend friend but his sister and that he basically has these incestual tendencies which I definitely can't recall a film prior to or around 1963 that was willing to discuss incest on this scale so that's just another topic that I'm amazed that they were even willing to handle in that time Not at least that was getting a mainstream release I think it was partially that storyline that really led me to those 50s and early 60s exploitation films. You know, you hear about things like Child Bride, the movie. I know I've never, I'm sure if you dig deep enough, you can find it. But that's a hard point. And especially spending as much time with Kathy as we do throughout those, he lets that camera linger on her and you can see how hard this is for her. She's not doing this willingly, and it's the furthest thing from, and Johnny just refuses to see the effect he's having on this woman he's supposed to love. Yeah, agreed. She, you know, I mentioned the scene at the end where she's basically molding him around her to hug her. It's like so poignant, so bizarre. The dancing scenes were interesting to me in that I I feel like they were intentionally, is anyone watching that dance and being turned on? I don't know. To me, that didn't seem super ironic. Perhaps I'm doing a disservice to the tent there, but Johnny kind of uses her career against her. Like when she says, you're going to go into this mental hospital and you're going to come out crazy. And he says, well, when you started stripping, I said that hanging around these, he says, hooker. Uh, Yeah. I think he says hooker in the scene. Yeah, uh, that that was going to turn you into one of them. And that didn't happen. This isn't going to happen. Of course, she turns out to be completely right. This movie is a hard watch, right? Like we could all agree. This is a tough one. At the same time, you know, I wouldn't say that Sam Fuller has no sense of humor or that there aren't funny things about the movie. One of the things is at one point when she's talking to Johnny's boss at the paper, there's a big newspaper on the back and it says Statue of Liberty to be unveiled today. That is the big headline. And I felt like there was some kind of relationship between that and her taking her clothes off for a living. I don't necessarily know exactly what that means, but I thought it and I thought it was like a little Very interesting. I did not register that, but you know, as well as we all do, those things end up in there for a reason. I liked too, somebody had also pointed out Fuller having a little Hitchcockian cameo. He's put a picture of himself in strip club as well, or the burlesque call, the music call. If you look at one of the mirrors, you can see a picture of him in there as well. 
I don't know if I necessarily made the jump to the humorous moments, I think in that first watch, but you have also, you said you've watched this a couple of times, right? This was not your first watch. Right. So I did not quite make that jump there. I was too lost in everything else. (laughs) I may have a weird sense of humor. That's (laughs) quite possible. I like that you mentioned the crafting of her dance scene, though, because I was watching, for those of you who have a Criterion subscription, there is some really interesting supplemental material on this film. There is a long interview with Constance Towers on there. It's probably 30 minutes. She talks about that scene and they kind of get into the dichotomy between John Ford and Samuel Fuller, who she worked with a lot. And she talks about having John Ford insist to be on the set that day when they were shooting that sequence. And she kind of smirks in the interview and goes, you know, maybe he wanted to be entertained. But then they also get around to the characters she had previously played and questions of protecting her virtue. So there is some complex stuff there as well that I do not. I, I've seen her in the horse soldiers, but I know I do not necessarily have a great knowledge of her career that I bet we could draw something really academically and scholarly if we really got there and had time to discuss it. I think the really interesting thing about her, and and we mentioned before, you know, how she is the gauge to his sanity, but you can almost sense from the beginning how this movie is going to end as soon as he is committed to this mental institution, because the very first thing that happens to him is he gets those flashes of her in her burlesque outfit haunting him basically telling him oh while you're in this institution I'm going to find somebody else and look what you're doing to me by doing this and that kind of thing and you can already see maybe he's a little off balance (laughs) so and of course you know throughout the movie you see that deepen and deepen until he's just completely unhinged In a lot of movies like this, Kathy would be just the sad, innocent girlfriend without that many lines, just the person to kind of hug him and have moments of hysterics because he's in this position. And I feel like she serves so much more of a purpose than that. I mean, she sends him to get shock treatment. Like that's her decision. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And of course, I think her performance really is a reflection of his and it has so much to do with the story. And she she does a really great job. I have to mention, of course, that she's still with us. I always love when we watch movies with actors that are still around. She's such a great person to compare to him. And you don't see in the end how she fares, how she does. And I like to think that she totally broke herself off of him and found a nice stable relationship. I don't know about you guys, but I think him actually going crazy is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back for her, I hope. And off screen, she finds some happiness and peace. I think the important point there is definitely that she's the one who okays the electroshock treatment. And that is the point there where we see him really, really, really starting to struggle. We mentioned earlier in the episode, he's very adept with those first two witnesses. We see him play acting. We see him kind of doing what he can do to get that information. 
But then she sends him for that electroshock therapy and we kind of breeze through the third witness, the nuclear physicist. But it's also because there's a very extended sequence where he can't even wrap his head around the words he needs to ask. You can hear his head going clearly, but he can't open his mouth and find his voice to ask the question that needs to be asked. So that is, I would say, a definite stylistic choice. And I do find it interesting that in all the reading I have done for this film, the stories that keep circulating, keep talking about Fuller asking Constance Towers to be in the film. There's a very distinct narrative about her involvement, and perhaps it's because, A, she is still with us. But we did not lose Peter Brack that long ago, but he was also moved away from the industry. But I think her character holds a lot more importance to the narrative than we give her credit for and that we're conditioned to give the female lead in a pulpy, noir film like this. Some of this, I don't know if this is in the film or in me, but I feel like there is a level of, you know, we've talked about the role of race in this movie, but I think, think that sexism is also in here as a malign force that is overlooked. You know, the murderer Wilkes, speaking of the Confederacy, when we ultimately find out that he killed because going to tell the head of the mental hospital that he had been having sex with the patients, like there's a couple of times before that where Wilkes makes comments that are just sort of like a little bit off color, where Johnny is at one point attacked by a bunch of nymphomania and a truly bizarre, ridiculous scene out of like Night of the Living Dead or something. So then later on, when he's taking Johnny in for an exam or something, Johnny says, you know, the last time I went into a room, I was attacked by a bunch of Amazons. And Wilk says, for some men, that's their greatest fantasy or something like that. And he also mentions at some point, like, oh, I got in trouble with the nymphos. <laughs> so there are these signs here, but Johnny doesn't pay attention to them. Nobody really pays attention to them, even though they're warning signs. That scene is so strange. And I'm glad you got there because that was where my head was kind of starting to drift. For lack of a better word, audience, I apologize. But yeah, they're, throughout the entire film, it's the nymphos, the nymphos, the nymphos. And then you have this, again, long single shot scene where Johnny kind of mistakenly wanders into the quote unquote nympho ward. It's very slow. It's very deliberate. It's very choreographed and brutal. And he's attacked and violated by these women. And it honestly, it's probably, ooh, it's again, it's where you see him start to lose. He's injured in the attack. I would venture a guess and jump in and disagree with me, either of you. But that's one of the first steps where we see him start to lose it. And then I'm thinking this freewheeling as I go. And then we see it with Kathy and the electroshock therapy. Are women bringing about his destruction? <laughs> That mm. is way deeper than I ever thought I would go in analyzing this film. But I think you have a, a really interesting point there. I mean, it's definitely possible. I would say that he's not quite unhinged yet because it's really, this is before. It goes into even, steps. It goes in steps. Absolutely. He's not, yeah, he doesn't snap all at once. It's a slow descent, but we see him interviewing and sort of really interrogating the first witness immediately following his attack and that sort of all, all of his injuries is sort of how he breaks the ice with the James Best character and gets him to 
reveal that the killer had white pants and then the second person reveals that it was an attendant and then the third ultimately reveals the name of the killer. I think that's one of the things that I appreciate the most about this film is that it's gradual and that it's not all at once. It's not black and white. It just, well, it is black and white, but (laughs) it's a nice, slow, gradual development into what you finally see at the end, which is him just catatonic. Very similarly to one of the patients you see in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it's the perfect reflection of the beginning and the end. And like I said, I really appreciate the ending. It's a really great full circle moment. Coming full circle. So let's get to that ending, which if you haven't picked up on this throughout here, spoiler, 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 do not have a happy ending here, folks. Johnny manages to crack it. We find out who the killer is, but it is at the expense of Johnny's sanity. And as we leave the film, he is catatonic in the hospital and he is just another one of the inmates. How did that, I'm going to inject a word here and say bleak ending play for both of you throughout. How did you feel about that in the context of the film? It's definitely a very depressing irony when you watch, when you see how far Johnny is willing to go, not for his craft, mind you, but for the award at the end. His hubris brings about his own downfall, I will say. Exactly. It's not, oh, I'm so dedicated to being a writer and I want to make the best story ever that makes him do this. It's, I want this prize. I want to win. And ultimately, he pays dearly for that with his sanity. He becomes another one of the inmates in this asylum at the end. He is so far gone in his pursuit of this award and his pursuit of the name of the killer. He finds the name of the killer. We assume are arrested and tried. We don't see that. We don't see that come to fruition, but we see the effect that it has on Johnny at the end. And and it's just a sweet irony. Again, very Twilight Zone. The last shot you see pan, the last scene is a new inmate being introduced to the hospital. And you see the, what they call the street, which is the main shock corridor of all of the other patients and you just see that he's another one of them and it's so tragic and so ironic and so neatly tied up that it just feels super twilight zone to me and i love it for that reason i think that you know connecting to the twilight zone is exactly right and like the twilight zone not every twilight zone episode certainly there's kind of this campy strangeness even to that I mean, funny isn't the right word exactly, but one of the things that I kind of enjoy in these final scenes is Dr. Christo, the head of the asylum, talking to them. And he's like, I mean, what did you think was going to happen? You sent this guy to this mental hospital? Did you think he was going to come out sane? That never happens, which is a great thing for the head of the hospital to say. This is not a place for sane people. And then he says this really over-the-top line, which is, what a tragedy, an insane mute will win the Pulitzer Prize. Just a nice little thing. The really tragic thing, I think, about this, and the thing that's almost funny in not being supportive of his character, he becomes too incapacitated to write his story. Like, I don't think he's ever going to win the Pulitzer because he's not even capable of writing about his experience. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I'm a little bit confused about, but also in a way where I'm like, I don't think the answer to this question necessarily matters that much. But 
at the beginning of the movie, he does a voiceover that's not what he's thinking. It's just like him talking to the camera. It doesn't have that like vocal effect on it that happens when we're hearing his thoughts, where he says, this is my story. And I'm wondering if that's supposed to be from the story he ends up writing about his experiences there. He doesn't seem like someone who could write a story at that point, but I also don't know how the Pulitzer works. So maybe maybe he could be a contributor or something in his boss writes. I don't know. And the worst part of it to me is that he ends up in the exact same institution. I mean, I'm not a mental health expert, but it sounds like that's not very conducive to helping him heal from anything. If it were me and I were really trying to make him well, I would take him out and try to assimilate him back into normal life. But we don't know if he's even too far gone for that. So he just winds up exactly where he was before. And hashtag 1963. There, we we did touch on, you know, the accuracy of mental health back then, but you're right. It doesn't seem like a super well-run institution given that murders happen and no one is really paying attention at all. There are a bunch of things that happen mm-hmm. where you're like, where are the art? You know, <laughs> is there no supervision? Um, <laughs> the race riot breaks out on the floor and it takes forever to put it down. It's like, Oh God. I think at one point during that, like everyone is running down the corridor and you see them run. There's a sign on one of the doors, which I think might say that it's Dr. Christo's office. So like they're just going right past and nothing happens. You know, no one takes any action. <laughs> it's uh... for one hallway. It's like, where could the orderlies be? <laughs> Once again, I'm thinking off the cuff here as we're having these conversations, I'm having all sorts of brainstorms. So I guess this means I need to rewatch this movie again. But I have to put in some unseen meaning going a little deep and analytical here. This is coming out 1963. We had I talk about this on the website all the time. I talk about this in other episodes of the podcast. We had the feminine mystique the previous year, give or take. We had the man in the gray flannel suit. I wonder if this is a somewhat a critique on 1950s Eisenhower consumerist suburbia culture at some level too. What is Johnny's focus on? It is on being a high-powered writer, getting out there, being a writer, being a good writer, getting the Pulitzer Prize, rising to the top of his field. Because I mean, what do top we can go really as writers? I would say the Pulitzer. And he's got purely this eye for social advancement. And how does it end? He's no better than anyone else. So I have to wonder if this is Fuller at some level critiquing just American culture as a whole, that the drive to get ahead, the drive to be better than your neighbor, to be better than the Joneses. And ultimately, it's not going to work. Ultimately, you're just going to become one of the rest of us because it's so bleak and it's so Twilight zone And that was such a poignant ending that said so much without really giving us the catharsis we need for happy endings and made you think and it made me think hard. So Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fun and this was hard and this was tricky and giving us this film, I'd say you gave my head the biggest workout I think it has had in a long time. Is there anything you want to share with people, social medias, places you'd like them to go? Yeah, so I'm J-W-G-H-A-L-L-E-R on Twitter and Instagram. Also, I have a podcast, which I co-host with my friend Carrie, where we talk about young adult books and other media called Love You Like Crazy. Love Y-A Like Crazy. 
which I think is pretty good. And check it out if you're interested. And then I'm also a musician and I've been doing live streams every week, Thursday, although I may change that at some point. And so you can find me on Twitch, twitch.tv slash J-W-G-H-A-L-L-E-R. And thanks so much for having me. All the Patreon bonus content is so great. And so I definitely encourage people who are listening who are not already members of the Patreon, go ahead and join up because it's awesome. Yay. As, as someone who likes to drop all my videos on there first, that means so much for you to say thank you. <laughs> to continue on with that, this is a Patreon perk. So listeners out there, if you'd like to jump on and discuss a movie with us, pop on over to our Patreon and see what we have to offer and look at subscribing. Leading into that, if you have any thoughts on Shock Corridor, Samuel Fuller, Peck, Peter Breck, like I do. Give us a shout out on social media. Let us know your thoughts. Maybe we will read those on a further episode coming up here. That's going to close us out on this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can follow Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts. Help us out. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As every other podcast tells you, those reviews do matter. We are available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, all those podcasty places. We're also flitting around all the social media places, but we do spend most of our time on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, Instagram at ticklish biz. And why don't you give us a visit over on YouTube? Why don't you? We don't have a direct URL yet, but if you can give us a subscribe, I believe we're only eight subscribers away from getting us a direct URL. Right now, though, if you search Ticklish Business, you can find your way over to us. So as I keep saying, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCMs, must-see movies, and why they matter. Right now, Ticklish Business subscribers can get early access to all videos before they air on the site. And Kristen and I will be diving into a new series of double features with some goodness coming your way very soon. Samantha, where can your fans find you? Well, I am mostly on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. You can find my blog at Musings of a Classic Filmatic. Our Wayward co-hosts here, Drea Clark, can be found on Twitter at The Drea Clark. And be sure to check out her contemporary film podcast entitled Maximum Film. And Kristen can be found on Twitter at Journeys in Classic Film. As I mentioned, my name is Kim. You can find me most often on Twitter at kpier624, and you can catch up with what I'm watching over on Letterboxd at kpier624 as well. Last but not least in all this housekeeping, check out our website at journeysinclassicfilm.com. We're finally at one of the best times of the year. That's right, kids. It's November. Every day on the site, we'll be showcasing a review for some of our favorite works of film noir. On top of that, keep an eye out throughout the month of November. I'll have a couple of different videos hitting the site throughout the month, as well as my new tribute for the month, which will showcase Mondays with Roy Scheider to celebrate what will have been the actor's 89th birthday. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Till then. <laughs> <laughs>